So the sermon that I'm going to give you this morning is titled, When Doubt Disrupts Our Relationship with God. Doubt, I would like to, before, before we really get into the heart of the sermon, I'll have to make a few general remarks about doubt. Yes, I am trained in the field of cultural apologetics, and yes, that is indeed a thing. So that means that, yes, I'm a huge nerd. I love Thomas Aquinas and Augustine, Jonathan Edwards, but I also like Shakespeare and John Milton and Dante. So I know, I know you're probably worried about the trajectory of your morning at this point. I'll try not to, to make you too bored, but it means I also pay attention to the songs of our nation, the films, the actual songs, the TV shows. Really, I think what, what has captured the, the popular imagination says a whole lot about lines of thinking, where we stand as a nation, and doubt occupies a really interesting position in our culture. But before we get into that, let's have a look at the text. I want to look at Matthew chapter 11. This is going to be page 816 in your Bibles. Now, when we talk about doubt in Scripture, there's usually another figure who comes up repeatedly. His name is Thomas. He's even called Doubting Thomas. Whether that's fair or not, I'm not quite sure. And that's a remarkable story in and of itself, his exchange between his Lord Jesus right after the, after the resurrection, when he hasn't believed and Jesus tells him, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. That's a fascinating story in and of itself. But today I want to talk about somebody else who's not usually associated with doubt, a great hero of the faith, John the Baptist. Now, this is interesting because John the Baptist, we don't usually associate him with doubt, but I also think that this is amazingly encouraging. Friends, if Scripture can focus in on a figure as great as John the Baptist and show us his moment of questioning in darkness, you can know you're not alone. You see, what I love about Scripture is that this is really, it's describing reality. It does not turn a blind eye to our deeply human struggles. And that's what we find here in John in sorry in Matthew chapter 11. So verses 2 through 6, we read these words. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, "Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another?" Jesus answered them, "Go and tell John what you hear and see." The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Absolutely remarkable passage. So doubt, let's back up for a second and just talk a little bit about doubt in general in our culture. Doubt occupies a very interesting place, especially for those of us who are here, find ourselves in the church, or maybe you're here this morning and you're skeptical, you're on the fence, that's all right, I'm glad you're here. But there's this interesting tension that we experience in Christian circles with doubt. On the one hand, in the church, doubt is often feared. And sometimes we're a little bit uncomfortable about opening up when we're questioning the Lord's will, or when we're questioning his existence, or more seriously, when we're questioning his character, his goodness. But in the larger culture, the story about doubt is different. 
In the larger culture, it's not feared. It's extolled. It's celebrated. People who are seen as doubtful, or the cooler word is skeptical, are often seen as being very, very smart, very intelligent, questioners, independent thinkers, critical thinkers, people who think for themselves. I want to tell you about two friends of mine, Fox and Dana. Very different people. Fox is open-minded. Fox likes conspiracy theories. He gives them, he gives them a fair shot. Fox has posters in his office that, says, that say things like, I want to believe. Fox is really open-minded. But my friend Dana is not like that at all. No, Dana is fiercely skeptical. She wants evidence. She's trained in the medical profession. She wants to know the facts. She does not like conspiracy theories. She's smart. Okay, these aren't really my friends. These are their agents, Fox Mulder and Dana Scully from The X-Files, one of the greatest television shows ever made. Now, their characters get a little bit more complex, and the analogy breaks down, but they function almost as archetypal pictures in our culture of the believer and the skeptic. Now, I point this out to show you that, by, by the way, but that both of these roles, as they're defined in our culture, the believer, open-minded, not, doesn't pay as much attention to the evidence, maybe a little bit more gullible, and the skeptic, much more hard-lining in their thinking, very, very attentive to the evidence, doesn't want sort of exotic lines of thinking, really just cares only about the facts. This is, this is deeply ingrained in our culture, but it's an assumption. And it's actually not necessarily true, and it's by no means self-evident. The sheer fact that somebody is a skeptic or defines themselves as skepti- skeptical does not necessarily make them any smarter than somebody who is religious. Okay, that is a deep seated cultural bias. And we need to be aware of it because that's crucial for our perspective as we consider doubt in an honest light. When we really think about doubt, it's interesting. There's a professor of philosophy named Daniel Dennett. Some of you may know who Daniel Dennett is. He teaches philosophy at Tufts University. He's written a number of books. He's a very outspoken atheist, one of Consciousness Explained and many other such titles. But he has this This is just to show you the ways in which cultural bias really affects the way we all think. This this seems really small, seems really innocuous, but he has this habit of referring to himself, fellow skeptics and other atheists, as brights, right? Meaning, we are the smart, enlightened, bright ones, and you benighted, scared, naive, religious folks hide from reality in your churches. Now, let me just, let's just take a few steps back and recognize that is not an argument. That is really simply an insult. And I think it's actually pretty insidious because talk about labeling people and putting them in a subclass, but it's very, very powerful. You see, our language has a huge impact on the way we think. Think about the way Christianity is often portrayed in popular culture. It fits this designation as well. But again, this is by no means self-evident. This is the cultural air we breathe. This is why it's important to pay attention to what has captured the public imagination. And a lot of this goes back to the Enlightenment. 
And the key slogan of the Enlightenment came from Immanuel Kant, famous German philosopher. Now, I grew up in, in Vienna, Austria, which is a German-speaking nation. And I know there, there are many European transplants here in Illinois and in the Chicago area, and it's been wonderful to hear all these diverse Euro- European accents. But I want you to know, I'm sure this isn't the case here, that, but when I moved to the South, and I still encounter this, whenever anybody f- figures out that I, I'm from Austria and they finally realize it's not Australia, but Austria, and that's why I don't have a sexy accent, <laughs> throw another shrimp on the bobby, but that, that then... What they, what they want to point out to me, I don't know, Southerners have this reputation for being so sweet, right? No, they're not. Immediately, oh, German, that is a hideous language right there. So ugly. You know, I really resent that. You know, I want you to know German has a real lilt to it. It's got a mechanical efficiency and a beauty all of its own. I mean, you know how to say I love you in German, right? Ich liebe dich. Don't you feel loved? Well, lots of German thinkers with harsh names. Immanuel Kant is one of them. But Immanuel Kant was was a seminal Enlightenment thinker, also one of the most boring philosophers you will ever read in your life. If you've ever been subjected to the critique of pure reason, you'll know that it is wonderful for putting you to sleep. But one of the things that, that he said, and he really summed up the Enlightenment spirit, and this is the spirit of our age to this day, he said, dare to know. Sounds really cool, really exciting, really intrepid. Dare to know. Dare to question traditions. Dare to step out on your own and figure out things for yourself. Dare to understand this world for yourself. Don't, be, don't run after anybody else and learn from them. Learn for yourself. This is still the way we look at the world today. But there are two kinds of doubt. There's healthy doubt and there's unhealthy doubt. Now, healthy doubt is just a simple fact of life. We, all, we, can't, we, we can't get through life without doubt. One of the easiest ways to illustrate this, and you all know this, is just when it comes to situations where there's possible danger. If you come home to your residence and you, found that, and you find that the lock has been tampered with, that somebody may actually be in the residence, then you know that you're in a situation that's potentially dangerous and you've got some healthy doubt about the safety of the situation. Most of us want our children to be very wary of cars that pull up next to them and idle by them when the window goes down and some nice welcoming voice invites them in for candy. No, doubt. Or when the road conditions are this precarious, somebody like me, I need to be very, I'm clumsy already, I need to be very wary of my steps. So that's healthy doubt. But unhealthy doubt is doubt that is directed toward the wrong things. Doubt that is pointing in the wrong direction. When you doubt the wrong things. And the central line of our culture is doubt everything else, don't doubt yourself. That is killing us. Friends, when I look at my own track record, when I look at my life, I don't have to scan the headlines to know the state of humanity. I really don't. I wish, it, I, wish I did, I don't. All I need to do is look into my own heart. All I need to do is, to, is look around. Look, I've just become... A dad, not too long ago, I have a two-year-old. We have another on the way. Nothing will teach you about your own shortcomings like having children. (laughs) Every day, I have to beg the Lord for mercy, and I have to thank him for his mercy. But if I put my complete trust in myself, I've made a huge mistake. So I want to explore this subject of when doubt disrupts our relationship with God under three headings. There are three things we've got to do if we want to persevere 
in our relationship with God, even when doubt enters in. And that's okay, because it will. It does. That's human life. The three things we need to do, we need to not reduce the Lord's work to the circumstances of our own life. Number two, we need to learn to look beyond our lives for significance beyond our lives. And three, we need to learn to place our complete and total hope in Christ. So number one, don't reduce the Lord's work to the circumstances of your own life. Two, learn to look beyond the circumstances of your own life to the the significance beyond them. And finally, place your hope completely in Jesus Christ. Let's look at that first item. Don't reduce the Lord's work to the circumstances of your own life. Why is this passage about John the Baptist so remarkable? Well, sometimes we need to compare Scripture with Scripture and do a little comparison and contrast, right? Comparison is the mother of clarity, says a gentleman I work with named Oz Guinness. And I trust Oz Guinness because Oz Guinness is a brilliant man, but he also sounds like Obi-Wan Kenobi. And that gives him a whole lot of credibility in my book. But in John chapter 1, it's the, remember John, the majestic opening of that gospel, one of the famous hallmarks of scripture in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and through him all things came into being. Well, at the end of that chapter, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. And in that moment, John the Baptist utters a mighty and powerful prophecy with not a tinge of doubt. As Jesus approaches him, he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then he says, I have seen the Holy Spirit descending as a dove, and I know that Jesus, this man, is the Son of God. Look at that. Amazing conviction. Powerful prophet. And by the way, a few verses later, Jesus says of John, that he is the greatest man born of women. Just an amazing, remarkable designation there. John is a true hero. Behold, the Lamb of God who who takes away the sins of the world. But now look at our passage, Matthew chapter 11. What's happened? Now he's sending a messenger. He can't go himself because he's in prison. Now he's sending a messenger to Jesus to ask Are you the one, or should we look for another? You see how remarkable that is? What happened to all that conviction? What happened to the man who said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? You know, just a side note here, I find it deeply, deeply encouraging that Scripture includes this story. Don't you? It's not hiding from this aspect of human life. You see, I travel around the United States quite a bit. I speak a lot at university campuses, and I travel around the world, too. I'll be going to India next month. And over and over again, I, 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 I have this repeatedly confirmed for me. The more abstract or intellectual a doubt sounds, generally speaking, the more superficial it is. If somebody comes to me and has a whole laundry list of, well, what about the problem of evil? What about the incompatibility of God's omniscience, omnipotence, omnibenevolence? Now, I know I take those questions seriously, but I mean superficial in the sense that this isn't personal yet. That's why it's superficial. But when somebody comes to me and they have lost somebody, 
or when there's been a terminal diagnosis, when a relationship has fallen apart, when, when it's personal, suddenly it matters a whole lot more. Friends, this is, a, this, this is a passage where it is deeply personal. John is in prison, and if you know, you know the, the further details of his life, he's going to eventually be beheaded in a scenario that could really just fit into a soap opera, this melodramatic, absurd story in the royal family ends up, this is, this is the end of his earthly ministry. And here he is in this prison cell. Now, what do we do in those moments? We wonder where God is. Where are you, God? Here's another line of thinking that tends to creep in often. And we do this, this is just, again, the air we breathe and this, this kind of thinking often infiltrates us in the church, and we need to catch it carefully because scripture, scripture can really address it very carefully. We often think, well, as long as I'm leading a, a fairly good life, I'm nice to people, I'm devoted, I read my Bible, I've even memorized some of it, I listen to really good worship music, I go to good conferences, I go to church, things should generally be, I'm serving God, things should work out for me. And then they don't. Life happens. And then we think, what, what has happened? I was playing by the rules. Where are you, God? Have you abandoned me? Are you real? Are you good? But friends, we live in a fallen world. I'll be very honest with you. I just, my, my uncle-in-law just lost his wife last night. She's gone. He's in the midst of deep, deep grief. Many of you are as well, I know. That's the world we live in. We live in a fallen world. Scripture doesn't hide from that. Because why? We have to be saved. This is why the gospel of Christ coming to this world, taking on flesh, and then dying for us and rising again is indeed good news. This is why we should never place our hope and trust in ourselves or this world alone. This world is broken and fallen and crumbled. Scripture tells us that we don't just need this world to be fixed or manicured. It needs to be broken, shattered, and remade. We are awaiting Christ to come back and make all things new. I know that's a heavy you know, note for this early in the morning, but we need to pay attention. This is what's happening to John the Baptist in prison. Now look at the marvel of Jesus' response. What does he say? Does he say, nope, stop the search, look no further, I am he. Jesus almost never gives a direct answer. Have you noticed that? He's always putting the onus on you because he wants your cooperation, your buy-in. About one of the only times that Jesus actually gives a straightforward answer in scripture is when the disciples ask him to pray, how to, how to pray. He says, okay, when you pray, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. That's one of the only times he's direct. But his answer here is beautiful. He, he's, here's what he says. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You see what he's saying? John, look beyond the circumstances of your own life and see my kingdom expanding. Look at the Lord's work continuing. You see, there's such a danger when we encounter trouble, and we will. That is life. When adversity, struggles, difficulty, moral failure, all of this, when it happens, 
We need to guard against shrinking the Lord's work to the circumstances of our own life. Because if we, if we do that, if we don't look any for, further than our own broken circumstances, then we are going to feel despair and hopelessness. If John the Baptist only looks at the bars of his prison cell, he doesn't recognize what the Lord is doing. That there's a greater... Friends, we're part of a cosmic plan. It's something so much bigger than our individual lives. We can't reduce the Lord's work to the circumstances of our own life. If we pay attention to what the church is doing around the world, if you look at what's happening in the global south, if you look at the, at the way the gospel is spreading like wildfire in China, places where it's experiencing such fierce persecution, and yet the church of our Lord is prevailing, it's wonderful. Learn to look beyond the circumstances of your own life. But in order to do so, we also need to be able to see the significance beyond our own lives. So this is point two. We've got to learn to look beyond our own, our own lives to see the significance beyond our lives. It's hard to do that because everything around us encourages us to focus wholeheartedly on our own little world. We've got the ability to customize just about everything in our world. We can customize our shows and our entertainment. We can customize our listening habits. And pretty soon, we're all painted into our little digital corners and our little spheres. It's a very small vision. A book came out this last year, and it's got a very provocative title. It's called Why Liberalism Failed. This is an, the author is Patrick J. Deneen. He's a professor at Notre Dame University. And he's not talking about, by liberalism, by the way, he doesn't mean progressivism or the Democratic Party. He's talking about, he's, he means something bigger. He's talking about the liberal experiment of the United States. Now he believes, and I just breathe a sigh of relief here, relief here, I am not getting into politics, I promise. We're not gonna talk about politics. We're actually gonna talk about the nature of human beings. Because his main point is, Liberalism, he believes, is not working. And he says that what has happened is the problem is it's got most of our liberal thinking and our classic liberal thinkers have a very flawed understanding of human nature and human freedom. I know that just sounds so interesting, so let me just make it real practical. He traces this back, by the way, to Thomas Hobbes, whose great political work, The Leviathan, maybe some of you had professors who inflicted this book on you at some point. But Thomas Hobbes has a pretty provocative thesis. And by and large, nowadays, it's simply accepted. It's not really questioned. And his thesis is this. Human beings are born in a state of radical, total freedom. And such is the degree of our radical freedom that we would just claw our eyes out were it not for the restraint of the law. So he's got a purely negative view of the law. It is simply there to restrain our more primal animalistic impulses so we don't all, so we don't all kill each other. Well, J. Patrick, Patrick J. Deneen says that's nonsense. And it is nonsense. It doesn't take long to see why. Are we really born into a state of total and radical freedom where we're just ready to claw each other's eyes out? Have you seen a little squirming infant? Helpless, helpless, utterly vulnerable, incapable of really giving you anything at that point. There are some organisms on this planet that are born incidentally remarkably powerful and strong and born fighting. Human beings are not among them. 
We are thoroughly relational creatures. What did your pastor kept saying over and over again last week? We need each other, but we do. It's a very humbling fact. If you even look at your own string of accomplishments, your life, you'll see there's a rich tapestry of relationships behind it. Parents, friends, teachers, people who have poured into you and helped you to become the person that you are. So if we see ourselves in these terms as relational, this is really part of the key to seeing beyond our own lives and seeing significance in other lives, to seeing a bigger picture, to seeing the Lord's work in the church around the world. I want you to know that one of the real joys of doing frontline ministry and traveling around is getting to go into church after church all around the world and meet people like you who are technically strangers but who are actually brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a remarkable, beautiful, beautiful thing. And it's a kind of unity that the world is absolutely starved for. Not long ago, I was with our team. We do these, we do these things called university missions. And at a university mission, we'll, we'll get a whole group of probably about 10 or 12 speakers and lots of volunteers, and we descend on a university campus, and we are there for a whole week. There's three talks a day. And you have to do this thing called flyering, and it's a verb. And you go into the the main student centers and the courtyards, and then you accost people and hand them flyers and try to get them to come. And if you are an introvert like me, this is your worst nightmare. But many great conversations happen there. But when we were, so recently, we were at the University of California, Berkeley. And yeah, the interesting place, a different planet in many ways, but it was wonderful. We, we really, truly were welcomed with open arms, and we saw many students give their lives to Christ. But one of the, one of the things that they, they over and over again were saying, this is, just, this is just amazing. This shows you how we need each other. This shows you the significance beyond our own individual lives. As much as I would love to tell you that in surveys and afterwards and feedback afterwards, they said, well, you know, it wasn't really any one thing, but that amazingly eloquent and persuasive guy who looks like Cameron from Ferris Bueller's Day Off really did it for me. No, it was the unity of our team. Over and over again, they kept saying, look, you, you guys are a very different group of people. You're ethnically diverse. You come from all different kinds of backgrounds. You're from all over the United States and different countries. And yet, what they were really trying to articulate was that we had all things in common in Christ. You see... Here we are at the University of California, Berkeley, a place, a, a place that prides itself on being a bastion of diversity and unity. It isn't. It's fiercely divided. It's broken. It is riddled with sexual assault and abuse, and people are scared and frightened and angry, and they are desperate for this kind of love and this kind of unity. We have it in the church, and the world desperately needs it. But we need to look beyond our own lives. We need to see the Lord's work advancing. It's so important. Finally, we need to recover a full hope in Christ and in Christ alone. You know, the word hope doesn't, it's got some bad PR these days, I think. Because when I hear the word hope, and when many people hear the word hope, I think the association is kind of, okay, well, that's maybe inspirational, maybe really kind of uplifting, but it certainly doesn't have too much to do with reality and the way things actually are. But I find that the more I travel around, one of the greatest needs is that people desperately need a realistic hope. 
a hope that actually deals with the world as it is. Terry Eagleton is a, is a British writer. He's a literary scholar. He's not a Christian, but he actually a very interesting, interesting guy. Actually, he's got, got a lot of sympathy with Christianity as well, and he's pretty hard on some of the more superficial forms of atheism that are out there. So he's an interesting guy. But he has a book that came out, and the title I am so jealous of. I wish I could just steal it from him. But it's called Hope Without Optimism. Isn't that great? I think it's great. Hope without optimism. In other words, hope that is robust, real, and that actually withstands the way things really are, that doesn't turn a blind eye to the darkness of this world. In that book, Eagleton talks about the Christian notion of apocalypse, the Christian notion of what has to happen at the end of times. And he says it's not, it's not as I was saying earlier, it's not that the world needs to have some social program that'll get things better, or it's not that we need to stamp out ignorance and gradually as we get more education and and as we learn more, we'll grow together and we'll root out all these systemic forms of injustice and wickedness and we'll solve all of our problems. He says, no, scripture says there needs to be a violent inbreaking of the Lord and everything has to be made new. But you see, that gives you the needed balance. When you recognize that our hope is in Christ and his coming kingdom. That means that we recognize on the one hand, we need to be invested in this world. We do need to fight for causes. We do need to try to improve the lives of those around us because after all, that's what loving our neighbors involves. We need to do that and we need to exercise our influence in whatever spheres, whatever fields of work we find ourselves. But on the other hand, we don't despair when stuff goes wrong. Why? Because we know that this world is not all that there is. And if we've placed our hope in Christ. Some of the great thinkers today, or the very celebrated thinkers, are very big on the fact that we're gradually getting better. One such gentleman is Steven Pinker, teaches a psychologist at Harvard University. I think his latest book is called Enlightenment Now. But his last book was The Better Angels of Our Nature, a phrase he borrowed from Abraham Lincoln, big 600-page tome, and in that book, it's a, he mounts some sophisticated arguments, but he's essentially saying we are gradually getting better, we are improving, medical technology is improving, all technology is improving, we're extending the lifespan, and eventually, we're going to usher in a new golden age of reason, and on that day, the dream of every beauty contestant ever will be realized. We will have world peace. <laughs> Well, now I sound like, I mean, at, the, at the risk of sounding a little bit dismissive, ladies and gentlemen, as I look at the world, again, I don't have to look at the world, as I look at my own heart, that's not happening. If we're placing our hope and our trust in human beings, we are lost. We are lost. Another skeptical thinker who's a little bit more honest than Steven Pinker This is a guy named John Gray, and that last name is very fitting, by the way. He says this. He says, Steven Pinker and those of his ilk have confused technological progress with moral progress. They are not the same thing. Yes, we have medical advances, but do you think that there is coming a day and an age where through human efforts, we won't need a police force anymore, we won't need a military, we won't need to lock our doors at night? We know the human heart. Christians are truly realistic about this, which is why we have to be saved. This is how we recover the the sense of our total hope in Christ. 
We have to be saved. The gospel is good news because without it, we are lost. We have to be saved by Jesus. This is why it's good news that he came, took on flesh, shows us how to live, shows us what it truly means to be human, goes to the cross, dies, and rises again. Friends, if you put your hope in anything other than Christ, you're destined to a life of despair. If you place your hope in Christ, I promise you, he will never let you down. He will never break his promises. Your eternal life is secure. Because after all, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to show us how to live, to go to the cross, and to die for us, and to rise again. Thank you for the fact that our hope is not in ourselves or in this world alone, but in you. Help us to hold on to that hope. Help us to be realistic about our hope. And help us to remember that we never need to be ultimately afraid because you you're safe and Christ is coming back to make all things new it's in his name that we pray amen